The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to Sporkbox. Here are your headlines today. Treasury yields sink and the S&P closes in the red as U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tells CNBC she sees continuing price rises in the short term. I think we, have, we will have several more months of rapid inflation, so I'm not saying that this is a one-month phenomenon, but I think over the medium term, we'll see inflation decline back to at normal levels. But, of course, we have to keep a careful eye on it. Morgan Stanley rounds out a positive week for bank earnings stateside, smashing second quarter forecasts with a strong showing from its investment banking division. At least 50 people have been killed and over a thousand are missing after flash floods rampaged through Germany and across northern Europe. And elsewhere, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the US President Joe Biden form a united front against Russian aggression, but they apparently agree to disagree over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. While I reiterated my concerns about Nord Stream 2, Senator Merkel and I are absolutely united in our conviction that Russia must not be allowed to use energy as a weapon to coerce or threaten its neighbors. And Lebanon in limbo once again. PM designate Saeed Hariri fails to form a government triggering protests in Beirut and sending the currency to fresh lows. time looking at this Janet Yellen copy which adds to the uh, Chairman Jerome Powell copy as well and it's all saying the same story. There is an institutional bias within uh, Washington uh, and indeed especially the, the Federal Reserve that believes that inflation is transient, yeah? That, that this isn't long term and the markets now are moving in the direction where okay if that's the case and we're going to obviously buy out these bond yields, bond bonds and the yields going to come down. Is that a dangerous situation? And that is what a lot of us are asking. Uh, the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that consumer prices will continue to rise over the coming months, but told CNBC she expects inflation to remain, quote, well under control. To my mind, that's um, the market expressing its views that inflation does remain under control. I think do see a world in which um, interest rates will remain at moderate levels and inflation will remain well under control. I'm going to say people are worried about it. I'm talking about people who have been around in the bond market for a very, very long time, who have analysed economies for a very, very long time as well. well. We'll get a few more views on this later on. But Here's a view. Double Line Capital CEO Jeffrey Gundlach has called on the Fed to intervene amid surging inflation, telling CNBC that price rises are reminiscent of the Jimmy Carter era in the 1970s. All right. And before we get to the Gundlach sound, let me just, just phrase this. OK, you've got the Treasury Secretary saying that inflation is well anchored over the medium term. You've got somebody who's traded the bond markets for decades saying this 
is rampant and uh, reminiscent of the Jimmy Carter 1970s era, which I'll, I'll hasten to add, if you all remember, came in the wake of the 73 oil shock and led to devastation, inflation, uh, and indeed uh, trough economics across Europe and the globe as well. So anyway, Goodluck is also arguing that US bonds are now essentially a negative yielding asset. We're kind of playing a chess game. The bond market seems to be thinking that the Fed is is going to like uh, get uh, get religion about this inflation, do something about it, and taper and do other things that's going to soften the economy, and that or or else the Fed is just they're they're buying a loan which is absorbing uh, virtually all the supply of Treasury bonds. Uh, it, this is suppressing the yields. So so the bond market is not really believing the inflation right now. Uh, Good luck weighing in there. I want to take you to what we're seeing on the markets now because it was a little bit of a weak pattern for some of the major markets. You can see the S&P 500 uh, down by about a third of a percent, uh, softer too for the Nasdaq off seven tenths of a percent. And if you look over the course of the trading week now, we are still seeing a slight increase for the Dow trading up by about a third of a percent, but it has been a weak outing for the S&P and also for the Nasdaq so far over the course of the week down one percent. So you are seeing a little bit of a concern there around the trading pattern. Uh, just worth pointing out what we're seeing elsewhere too around some of the big uh, banks and technology names. Just take a look at the technology sector and how it's fared over the course of the, the trade yesterday. You could see it was downbeat, Apple falling. Amazon was one that had a uh, big impact on the S&P. It traded down 1.4%. And you can see uh, across the board, it was in lockstep. Uh, the move south, Twitter was down a little bit more than the rest of its peers, shedding just over 3%. Now, the banks, uh, we've had a lot to digest this week from the big names on Wall Street. And uh, mostly it's been positive, as you've seen, a better performance on the back of IPOs and M&A, that uh, provisions have also been brought back and uh, that's flattered a lot of the earnings as well. It was Morgan Stanley's turn yesterday. And in fact, it had a beat on the uh, equities trading side. I think many of us had thought that was a bit of a fade in terms of the trading portfolio because we've had fairly muted markets for the past quarter, but still a beat from Morgan Stanley that was positive. But uh, worth noting after some of this green that uh, really pushed through into the banking stocks yesterday, over the course of the trading week, it's been a slightly different picture. This is how it looks for some of the majors. You can see, in fact, a pullback for Bank of America of about 3 or percent, trading down for JP Morgan as well. Other trades are fractionally higher. So this is probably the one to look at. It's just a little bit of preloaded action. Monday session before the, the report cards crossed and then obviously trade on the back of the earnings and a little bit of digesting uh, the numbers and then further trades as well. So uh, this is uh, certainly the performance to look at over the course of the week. Now, let's take a look at Treasuries. As we continue to debate whether inflation is transitory, just how high the prices might go short term and, and where the pain has been felt. The messaging from Janet Yellen, in addition to what we've had from Jay Powell, it is being taken by the market as almost gospel. We're hearing about religion there uh, from Gunlack, but uh, the market is very much buying into this messaging. And you can see it is calm on the US Treasury yield as a result as we sit very close to that 1.3% level. Let's take a look at the Asian market. So we have seen a bit of a reversal from the Japanese stock market. In fact, it was below 28,000 points at one stage, but uh, now back up above that threshold, but still trading lower. The technology sell-off on uh, Wall Street and the Nasdaq in particular was uh, picked up and carried across to those Tokyo stocks today. But uh, the Hong Kong market, Australia, patches a green flat performance for China. So very mixed across on these boards today. Steve, are you looking at some earnings? 
I'm looking at all kinds of stuff, and you'll be fascinated by these numbers out from Ericsson as well, Karen. Um, let me first of all uh, tell you that I think we should probably have a, a long chat about the banking sector again after the break. Uh, we've got covered it a bit this week, but it's quite fascinating, some of those numbers. Yeah, I'm just looking at the five-year chart of Ericsson. What I wanted to do is just have a look at that compared to the statement we've just got out. Um, back in 2017, trading around about 46 Swedish krona, now trading 115, give or take the change as well. Uh, the news out from Ericsson is... Uh, on the face of it, it's very positive across the board. They've got a new $8.3 billion 5G deal with Verizon for 5G in the United States. Um, solid sales figures as well, coming in at 57.2 Swedish krona. Um, the adjusted EBIT is $6 billion. They're looking at annual market growth in enterprise of a mere 20 to 30% as well. So huge increases there. Uh, but um, they are talking about um, improvements are skewed towards the end of 2022. And we expect to see a gradual increase in core revenues as well. What I'm encouraged about is the margins. I mean, as I've always said, anyone can sell anything at the wrong price. But if you can sell it at the price where you're profitable, that's the key. So the second quarter operating margin was up to 10.6% rather than 6.9% a year ago as well. Gross margin 43.4 as opposed to 376 a year ago. We're going to spend a lot more time on Ericsson a little bit later on. Uh, Karen, I'm sure you'll lead our interview on uh, with the CEO, Bordi Ekholm, and uh, that's coming up uh, at eight o'clock. That is the first on CNBC interview. Right, a little bit difficult on the Chinese numbers uh, and the market share there, given that what we saw out of Sweden blocking Huawei as a vendor in that market. So uh, a little bit of a, a fallout for Ericsson as anticipated. Steve, I'm just going to pick up and take a look at uh, some Richmond numbers also crossing this morning. We've had a trading update for the first quarter, a strong impact from COVID-19 cited with sales for the quarter down by 47% at actual uh, and constant exchange rates. Uh, the group's gross and net cash positions at the end of uh, the 30th of June 2020 amounted to $7.9 billion. And uh, the company saying as at uh, 30th of June, all distribution centres and most stores have reopened with some exceptions in the Americas. Double-digit sales decline across all regions, so still telling us about some pain. And don't forget, this is a big luxury business. We're talking timepieces, jewellery, also uh, big online luxury names as well. Online retail uh, showed stronger resilience than sales in other channels. So that is uh, showing up as we talk about the uh, dispersion in the business lines. Uh, jewellery masons and online distributions or distri distributors fared better than other business areas. So... It is a fascinating tale in the numbers as you talk about the disruption from stores still being shut. And as we talk about other retail, that is very much the case as well, where you continue to see problems uh, with uh, store closures. And of course, travel. Travel is a huge one for the luxury market where people buy goods uh, based on uh, where they are traveling to and from. And the UK, of course, is a big market too for many of those tourists. So we are seeing uh, very different numbers uh, across various different parts of this business, but online clearly supported at this stage, Steve. Yeah, I think, I think it's an alternative investment story as well. I think it's all part of the same story about inflation and people very, very concerned about where there are stores of value left. Um, let's move on. Thanks, Karen. Right. Uh, the initial weekly jobless claims is, is the piece of data yesterday that our, our team has focused on. I, I think maybe we've missed the biggest bit of data, but I'll, I'll come to this. U.S. weekly jobless claims have fallen to a pandemic era low with first time filings coming in at 360,000. Uh, that figure matched Wall Street estimates with a total number of people receiving benefits falling to just over 14 
million. If you'll indulge me a second, I think the industrial production figures really spoke volumes yesterday. We're only up 0.41%, and that's because the auto industry is struggling so badly. Vehicle parts and production down 6.6% in June. That's not because Americans aren't buying cars. They're buying them in droves. We saw the used car price already this week. It's because they can't buy new cars, because they can't get hold of the parts, because there are shortages uh, across the board. So I thought that was a, a fascinating story. Anyway, speaking to CNBC, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen outlined her belief that the economic recovery will continue at a strong rate into 2022. My expectation has been that next year the economy would get back to full employment or something very close to it. And that still that remains my expectation. So um, we are seeing people go back to work. Um, I expect that to continue. There's um, plenty of ability to spend that remains in the pipeline to drive continued growth. And, you know, there's still really a lot of people who need to be put back to work. So I expect the recovery certainly to continue at a good, good, strong pace into next year. Right, let's get to a man who's never short of a view or two, and that's Sean Corrigan, who's the director of Cantillon Consulting. Sean, always a pleasure speaking to you. I always learn a lot as well, especially when I understand what you're saying. Uh, and I wasn't sure whether to go with your whistling past the graveyard analogy or actually uh, go to another quote in the last 24 hours. So I'm going to go for the latter because there's a great quote from Lord Forsyth of Drumlean, who is the chairman uh, of the, uh, the Monetary Affairs Committee, I think, out of the House of Lords, or certainly the uh, Public Finances Committee, I think. A damning report on QE. It says, QE has done little for growth, consumer spending and investment in the past decade, but it has entrenched wealth inequalities and created new risks for public finances. And here's the quote. Um, it's like playing golf, I'm talking about the Bank of England, it's like playing golf, a round of golf with only one club, i.e. the Bank of England reaches it for it, whatever the economic problem. I, I guess you have a lot of sympathy in that view on both sides of the Atlantic. Good morning, my friend. Good morning to you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the analogy that we've always used is the central bank has a hammer and goes around looking for nails, but it's effectively the same same metaphor in a slightly different format. Um, ever since they started this nonsense, well, 13 long years ago now in the case of uh, Western central banks and probably another 18 years before that in, uh, in Japan, um, it's been just one-way traffic, hasn't it? Every time something uh, goes wrong every time there's some slippage there's no uh, there's no appetite anymore to take pain if the economy gets out of kilter sometimes it just has to slow down rebuild restructure put the mistakes right but they try to paper over it they try to flood it it's like when your engine's misfiring you keep pouring oil in and hope that it's going to run better and that's what we've done all the way through sean um You've mentioned 18 years in terms of the Japanese experiment and 13 years in terms of a lot of Western nations experiment uh, in Europe and the United States as well. But where are the ramifications? I'm sure they're there. I'm sure they, the negative concerns are there, but they seem to be dormant for a lot of people who have been concerned about it. And we have shared your concerns here on, on this show as well. We're not seeing the huge negative ramifications coming through or, or are they just basically still simmering? Well, I think they are there. That's this that whole idea about um, the spread of inequality, isn't it? So consumer prices have been relatively subdued and we can have all sorts of arguments and hand waving after the event about why to do with globalization, the opening up of China and the Far East, so on and so forth. Even um, the fact that so many businesses these days just get money thrown at them. They basically VC multiple takeover Ponzi schemes and don't necessarily have to make much of a return on capital. 
because somebody else is going to buy them for a bigger multiple down the road. I mean, okay, this is hand waving, but the traditional CPI numbers have not been strong, as we know. But then if there'd been such a great supply side revolution with so much wonderful technology and so many more people in the workforce, presumably prices should have fallen because we've been producing so much more. So there's a counterfactual there. But where the inflation has been, of course, is in asset prices. And this is where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the middle class sit there thinking, how the heck am I ever going to pay for my retirement when bond yields are negative? Sean, can we talk about the psychology of inflation? Because central banks are saying one thing. It's almost the forest for the trees argument where they have this uh, view over the canopy and they feel as though prices will recede at some point. But we now have business leaders, CEOs, managers looking at pricing pressures that they've not seen for many years. And they're stunned at how quickly those price increases have come on the back of a crisis and also how they're going to handle it. They've pretty much had their fingers crossed at this point that some of those pressures will abate. If they don't, or if they conduct certain behaviours that reinforces inflation expectations, is that a wild card for central banks? Well, absolutely. I mean, Janet Yellen, I think yesterday said something about um, measures of expectations of what drive prices, and they look pretty good. Well, what what measures is she talking about? She's talking about the bond market as usual, and the bond market, as we know, there's a big fat thumb in the scales called the central bank. So that is that is an issue. Which, it's a measure that doesn't measure anything. It measures itself. Um, but yes, if you look at all the business surveys, you look at things like the Philly Fed Index, you look at the NFIB Small Business Survey in the States and so on and so forth. And not only have most of these businesses raised prices dramatically, which has been shown up then in the official indexes, but they're all planning to raise prices further in the future. And I don't know where we get this idea. There are no expectations. They're there in front of you. So if you connect this up to the markets and the trading we've had, I mean, the bond yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has declined and nothing to see here, no concerns sort of category around, around this 1.3% level versus where we traded in March. And then equity markets, a uh, little bit in a lull, but still in between all that, continue to, to track around fresh records. Is this telling you about a level of complacency or a sell-off coming up down the track? Well, it's a bit of both, isn't it? It's, um, it's, it's wishful thinking, it's denialism, it's special pleading, it, perhaps it's downright deceit. People don't want to open the box and look and see what's inside it. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, the Fed has basically flooded the market with so much liquidity. We've had all this discussion for weeks now about the, the infamous reverse repos, which got up to nearly a trillion dollars and are still running, I think, at three quarters of a trillion. People have so much money pumped at them by the Fed that they don't know what to do with it. So is it any surprise that Treasury yields are falling in that circumstance? Now, should they be falling? Were this a market that was actually uh, based on people's intentions to save and spend money and to put things aside for the future, which is what a bond market should be doing? Absolutely no. They're at negative interest rates. The US, the spot real yield, subtract today's CPI from today's 10-year yield, and it's back where it was in the great inflation, highly negative. German bond yields have not been this low in the post-war era. Uh, so, we, you know, this is a madness. Um, it's a madness driven by institutional me measures, nothing to do with the underlying economics. Yeah, Sean, just one more bit of madness. We haven't got that much lot more time. But um, the, the, the leverage argument as well, you put out in your copy that Jerome Powell seems to think we are or businesses are reducing leverage. Every single one of your charts and a lot of other charts I've seen as well said, no, quite the opposite. There's a vast amount of leverage out there. Well, the only thing I can think he's talking about is maybe um, debt to equity ratios, because if we, you know, if we look at market cap, it's super high because we've inflated the value of stocks. 
and it's in stock prices have gone up faster than than debt levels on the balance sheet have risen. But if you look at debt to debt to net worth has been flat for several many years now in many, most cases, but uh, but debt to operating income is still at all time highs. It's secularized. I think in the manufacturing industry, it's between three and a half and four four times EBITDA. Now you can't say that's unleveraged. No, no, indeed. Oh, well, well, thanks for starting us off with such a happy start to the show. In fact, I think it was me doing it before you anyway, Sean, but you wouldn't expect uh, always a pleasure. Else, Can't wait to see you in the... And I, I would be disappointed, Sean, that's the problem. I would be disappointed if I had anything else as well. When the fire goes from the belly, then we've got to start worrying. Lovely to see you, my friend, as ever. And thank you very much indeed for joining us nice and early. Uh, Sean Corrigan from Cantian joining us there. Right, okay, just to say other voices on a lot of these issues, including Jeffrey Gundlach, he's already been talking about inflation, hasn't he? He's also given CNBC his take on Bitcoin with the billionaire investor telling CNBC the chart looks pretty scary at the moment. Yeah, and we've already come off 50%, haven't we? So for more on that, check out CNBC Pro. And coming up on the show, shipments fall at the world's largest iron ore miner, but Rio Tinto is still expected to post bumper earnings. We are live in Sydney next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, to round off the banking earnings season, certainly some of the biggest ones so far. Morgan Stanley posted better than expected second quarter earnings as investment banking revenue rose by 15.8% following a surge in pandemic-driven merger activity. I've got a number here somewhere. Here we go. They advised on 216 deals in the first six months. 216 deals. Now, the lender also saw a strong performance at its key equities trading desk, but that was offset by a 45% slowdown at the fixed income unit. Well, speaking during an earnings call, the CEO, James Gorman, outlined the bank's plans to raise dividends and share buybacks. We reset our dividend, doubling it to 70 cents per share and also increased our buyback for up to $12 billion over the next 12 months. We made this decision because of the confidence we have in our business model and our performance over the past three Federal Reserve stress tests. Morgan Stanley has built a significant amount of excess capital, and we have the ability to invest in our business, do acquisitions, maintain a very healthy dividend yield, and increase our buyback. Now, I'll let you into a little secret. There's a very robust conversation going on off air between Karen, I and our magnificent production team led by Mohammed this morning as well. Uh, and it's about how much we need to talk about these following factors. Low interest rates and weak lending conditions having weighed on the results from Wall Street lenders this week with Bank of America missing revenue estimates. Total sales at Citigroup sharply fell. JP Morgan posted decline in overall revenue warning of a challenging lending environment. However, Goldman Sachs saw revenues jump thanks to a strong performance at its asset management unit. But the point I would make, Karen, is it's, it, these companies have travelled and now they've arrived. And I would say across the board, despite a little bit of a wavering performance here and there as well, these have been stunningly strong figures in many, many ways. The banks have not been the problem. They're returning 
shed loads of money to their investors. And they've also had some very, very strong rallies as well. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the only out of uh, Kilter number was uh, the trading, equities trading really at Morgan Stanley. We thought it'd be a bit of a washout uh, for most of the banks this quarter. So that was a standout yesterday for Morgan Stanley. But I think the other themes are all there as we talk about very strong investment banking on the, the M&A, the IPOs, but also uh, what we're seeing on the loan portfolio, still a little bit uh, soft. We're not seeing a real bounce back there. Uh, the money is going for consumer spending, so that's impacting credit cards to an extent, but the actual loan demand is still a missing piece in this puzzle for some of the banks. Uh, let's park the conversation there and take a look at commodities as Rio Tinto has reported a 12% fall in quarterly iron ore shipments after bad weather hampered production in Western Australia and amid COVID-related labour shortages. However, the mining giant is still expected to post strong earnings at the end of the month amid rising iron ore prices. Will Caliris joins us with more out of Sydney. Will, I think many people are closely watching the demand side in particular. Production certainly comes into the mix, but they want to know what lies ahead given the escalation in the commodity prices and now a slight fallback as China has tried to manage that escalation in recent weeks and months. Yeah, and it, it depends on who you ask. Obviously, if you are going to be speaking to Rio Tinto and looking at what they were saying in their Q2 report, they're actually believing that the demand story is going to maintain its strength. They said that over the first half, it actually still demand kicked up by around about 5% in China. They were also post, uh, pointing to ex-China growth as well. We had an analyst on just a little bit earlier on Asia programming. He was basically suggesting you've got to look at markets like Vietnam and India and all of these ex-China growth stories, and he believed that the iron ore price could actually hit 300 a tonne. But getting back to Rio Tinto, yes, they did see that weakness when it came to the production and shipment for the quarter, but this was relatively expected as well by the market because if you're tracking along with the, the weekly shipping numbers coming out of the ports that Rio Tinto use, it was weak, and that was actually part of the reason that the iron ore price continued to push higher because they've been having a number of supply based issues in terms of maintenance. They had a fire at one of their facilities and at the same time, they were actually experiencing quite significant labour shortages along with the bad weather that we had been seeing in the Pilbara for the period. But negatives aside, there are a lot of good things when you do look at some of the underlying metrics in these numbers. And I suppose first and foremost is the fact that they realised prices obviously are absolutely exceptional for the period. In terms of the quarter, you're looking at 183 per dry metric tonne. But if you're just looking at the first half, it's $168 dry metric tonne per tonne for their, for their first half. If you go back to first half in 2020, it's 85. So irrespective of even the fact that their costs have increased for FY21 to 18 to $18.5 a tonne, obviously there are a number of issues when it comes to the input cost and the labor cost. So it's a little bit of a hit. You're looking at the margins and thinking, okay, versus H1 2020 and H1 2021, they're going to be making an exceptional amount of money, Steve. So the cash is still coming. Consensus has that first half dividend that normally is a weaker dividend at around about $4.80. But you, you shouldn't be selling out of Rio Tinto, I suppose, if it's just a matter of getting that dividend and having that yield being continually strong. Well, thank you very much for the update there. Elsewhere, Intel is reportedly in talks to buy semiconductor manufacturer Global Foundries in a deal worth $30 billion. That's according to the Wall Street Journal, which cites people familiar with the matter. The deal could help Intel scale up its production of chips. Earlier this year, the company said it will invest in expanding its manufacturing facilities in the United States as it tries to take on competitors such as TSMC and Samsung. Thank you.
you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.